Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property, I'm Peter Switzer. And on tonight's show, we look at the unbelievable home price numbers with Tim Lawless from CoreLogic. How can national house prices fall by only 0.4% when we're in a recession that has contracted the economy by 7%? How's that work? And then we talk to the CEO of the Master Builders Association, Danita Warren, and she wants us to be able to access $50,000 from our super so property-starved Aussies can buy a house and save the economy along the way. And finally, Propertyology's Simon Presley explains the fried egg model for property as he says we're heading towards a scrambled egg model, which could be really good for home prices in the regions and for those people who can't afford to buy homes close to the CBD. That's the show, so without any further ado, let's go and talk to Tim Lawless. Well, on a day when we discovered that the Australian economy contracted by 7% in the June quarter, we're talking to Tim Lawless of uh, Core Logic Data, and we're talking about the fact that national home prices in August only fell by 0.4%. Now, as an economist, reconciling a 7% contraction in the economy you know, in the June quarter, and then we see house prices only falling by 0.4%, really makes this one of the craziest recessions I've ever seen. Tim Lawless, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Do you agree with me this is one of the craziest recessions you've ever seen? Well, uh, I haven't seen that many recessions, to be honest with you. Uh, you're so um, young. You're, you're so we've got a, a few years on me. But uh, absolutely, it is crazy. And when you look at some of the, the factors that are contributing to, uh, to such weak economic conditions, you know, we, we haven't seen anything like this uh, I don't think any of us can remember back in the 1920s and 1930s. So when you look at the housing market, though, it does seem to be a bit of a safe harbour in many ways. We haven't seen anywhere near the sort of falls in housing values that, that many expected we might have, say, back in March or April. But we have seen a lot of volatility, particularly in activity uh, emanating out of the markets or the regions where there's been uh, you know, high, uh, more virus cases and more severe lockdowns. Why don't we talk about, so the national number uh, was 0.4%, wasn't it? Down nationally 0.4% over the month in of August. And for the year? Uh, for the year, we saw housing values up by nearly 6%, up 5.8%. Obviously, most of that being driven by through the second half of last year. Mm. Okay, so let's go around the, the country first because... Yeah, you know, I think it's fairly obvious that uh, Melbourne would have really had the worst of it. But this take us around the capital cities. Well, the the, the trends we're seeing across the capitals are quite diverse. Uh, you've mentioned Melbourne. Melbourne was down one point two percent over the month, which was about the same as what we saw in July. Uh, it's the only capital city where we didn't see some sort of an improvement either in the rate of decline or in, in the market leveling out or even showing some improvement. That's exactly what we saw in Sydney and Melbourne was even though values were still falling, nowhere near as fast as what we'd seen over previous months. And then we saw markets like uh, Adelaide and Perth leveled out and values actually rose again across Canberra and Hobart and, uh, and were a bit higher across Darwin as well, which tends to be a bit more of a volatile market uh, based on low numbers. 
but Melbourne is really looking like the outlier here uh, for understandable reasons. Have you, have you tried to work out the main reasons why house prices have really been reluctant to fall significantly, um, Tim? Uh, yeah, of course we have. I think there's a few a few different reasons for that. There's, there's the really obvious ones around uh, there's so much support uh, in the economy at the moment, either fiscally or for monetary policies with interest rates being as low as what they are. But I think less obvious than that is We've seen vendors very reluctant to sell under these conditions. There's no evidence of, say, urgent sales or forced sales in the marketplace, at least at the moment. And those really slow, low stock levels or low advertised inventory levels, I think, are one of the factors helping to insulate housing values. You know, if you look at listing numbers coming into the end of August, uh, normally this time of the year they start trending higher quite quickly through spring. They're actually doing the opposite at the moment. They're falling. We're seeing the number of new listings is well below last year's levels. And last year was a pretty low benchmark to compare back to. And total listing numbers are also trending lower now, mostly being dragged lower by Melbourne. But even markets where values are rising are still seeing uh, relatively steady stock levels and remaining well below where they were last year. Mm. So, so taking in the, the multiplicity of factors that are operating here right now, what do you think is going to happen for the remainder of this year? Given the fact that September will start seeing a, a new phase of JobKeeper, um, I guess if I'm working in a company like Harvey Norman that reported really, really well, uh, they will no longer be on JobKeeper, so you know, Jerry will have to find the wages himself this time. Um, but I guess what's your feeling about what's going to happen to the enthusiasm for buyers and the supply of properties, say, in that last quarter, the December quarter? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the risk is skewed to the downside here. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're moving into a stage of, of, this, um, of this disruption or economic recession where a lot of the fiscal support is going to start to, to taper off. So as you're moving at the end of September, uh, on, on estimates from the Grattan Institute, moving from about 18 billion uh, government support a month down to about 3 billion. Mm. And of course, it's also coinciding with a time when uh, distressed mortgage uh, borrowers will have their six month check-ins with their lenders. And uh, of course, the, for, for those in a distressed situation that can prove it up, they have another few months where another four months or so where they can extend their, uh, their, their payment deferments. But I think we're approaching a period in the market now where those people who are in a distressed situation are going to be seeing less support from the government uh, in the way of fiscal support, but also start to, to think about how they're going to be fronting up to their debt obligations. Mm. I think for, for some people, they simply won't have much uh, option here than to actually start selling off their assets. I think we'll probably start to see that more voluntarily uh, than bank uh, forcing people to sell. You know, typically, if you go through a foreclosure process, there's many months of working through that for the banks. That's still some way off. But just listening to some of the comments from the bank CEOs, like uh, Ross McEwen or Matt Common, we've already started to see some very frank language here that uh, those people who are uh, under a repayment holiday and don't think they're going to be in a position to start repayments at the end of March, 
they need to start getting their shop in order and uh, maybe think about offloading their assets sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I guess given what you've said to, to me about the supply of property, I guess making a decision early could actually end up being a, a reasonable way of getting the best possible price? Well, I think it's fair to assume that the property prices will continue to fall. And uh, so under your logic, it, it's probably better to sell sooner rather than later under, under that circumstance. Mm. We're not expecting, uh, come say the end of the year, the property prices are going to crash. I think this is going to be quite a gradual but prolonged uh, downturn in the marketplace. And we probably will gradually see more distressed assets coming on the marketplace rather than being pushed on all at once. Mm. So in many ways, if, if you're an optimist and you're, you're hoping that your optimism isn't misplaced, Seeing a vaccine uh, show up ASAP is going to be very important, um, Tim. Yeah, I think so. But, but considering the market is is very different from region to region, and uh, you know, if you're in a market like Perth or Canberra, there might even be some upside here for prices. Mm. Those markets seem to be a little bit more disconnected from what's happening in the major capitals. Some of the regional markets around the country. Uh, are generally outperforming their capital city counterparts as well. And, and at least anecdotally, we're seeing this, this swing of demand into some of those more uh, lifestyle driven markets that tend to offer up uh, commuting opportunities into mm. the major cities as well as more affordable price points. So I think it's, it's going to be an increasingly diverse outcome for markets around the country. Are you suspecting that when all this washes through, there will be lots of um, businesses that will give their staff the option of working from home. And then that in turn will create uh, demand opportunities for those sorts of locations where people wouldn't want to travel to work every day, but might be happy to do it once or twice a week with three days working from home. And as a consequence, those sort of like those regional satellite areas outside the major cities could become pretty popular. That's a possible outcome. We're certainly uh, seeing the fact that a lot of people who've been working remotely have been doing so very successfully. Uh, I don't think there's been any obvious signs of, of worsening productivity. Maybe even it's the opposite, where people have become more productive because they don't have to uh, commute mm. into the office as much. I know just from my own personal perspective, I've probably uh, had a lot more engagement with our clients working from home than I would have working from the office simply through technology. So I think we probably will see some, some positive legacies from COVID-19 in the sense that uh, it, we've proven up that a lot of people can work remotely. Clearly that's only specific types of industries, the knowledge workers, clerical workers, uh, more office style jobs, uh, but um, there's still a lot of jobs that you simply need to front up and, uh, and be there face to face uh, or work on the tools, so to speak. So it's not going to be the case for everybody. But I think to your point, those markets that are within commuting distance to the major working centers and the job nodes that also offer up either uh, some lifestyle alternatives, cheaper housing prices, um, amenity is really important like healthcare and schooling and so forth as well. Whereas those markets or regions that are more sort of far flung and more reliant on say tourism numbers or particularly international tourism numbers that don't have the commuting opportunities, they might not be quite as uh, well positioned. Mm. One last question, uh, Tim, Air, the Airbnb effect, do you think that's working through to actually depress overall uh, apartment prices in particular? Because a lot of the Airbnb um, 
products are apartments in tourism destinations. Uh, do you think that's actually becoming a significant uh, price pressure issue? Well, we're already seeing that in rental prices. Absolutely. Uh, so to give you some context there, if you look at around, look around the key rental markets, particularly inner city apartment rental markets around the country, there's been a real surge in the number of properties available for rent. So vacancies are rising quite quickly. Uh, I was just before your interview, Peter, I was looking at say the top 20 regions around the country for, for increased rental listings. And they all tend to be around inner city Melbourne and inner city Sydney. A few, a few others here and there, like uh, inner Brisbane, inner Perth as well, are seeing quite a rise in rental listings as well. Um, and, and what we're seeing associated with those, that real, like in some of these markets, it's, it's rental listings have more than doubled since the middle of March. And we are seeing some very clear and quite significant downward pressure on rents in those markets as well. So I think that that clearly is going to flow through to some uh, some weakness from investment in those markets, particularly for investors who own a rental property that had an impact to their rental income, maybe to their working income as well. Not a lot of prospect for uh, for getting a tenant in at the same sort of rent they might might have been expecting. And then behind that is coming a whole bunch of new stock into the marketplace that's currently under construction and due for completion. So I think those inner city rental markets that have been very popular with uh, short-term rentals are mostly converted to long-term rentals now as well. Mm. That's going to be one of the most fragile market sectors going forward. It seems to be very much confined, at least mostly, to inner Melbourne and yeah. inner Sydney. But I guess it will really be um, good news for those young people who, who, who do work in the city and have been yearning to be able to get uh, affordable apartments in CBD, Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be a flip side here. And, and uh, the positive or the silver lining here is that uh, we are likely to see a lot of those apartments being snapped up. I guess the unfortunate reality for some of those apartments is they do tend to be what you might politely describe as investment grade, mm. typically very small floor areas, uh, high rise, uh, very high density buildings as well, which I, I really don't think are going to be all that appealing for a large number of the owner occupiers out there. Yeah. But you, you are speaking as a Queenslander, mate. Uh, you know, the, the urban, the urban gorillas of Sydney and Melbourne have different attitudes to you, let me assure you. But one final thing, are you seeing any interest coming out of Asia to buy properties in Australia? I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the troubles in Hong Kong in particular. Are we seeing any trends there that indicate that the, um, the Asian interest in Australian properties on the rise? It's, it's not something I have a lot of visibility over, to be honest, Peter. Yeah. And uh, I think just, just thinking reasonably, you'd have to expect there is going to be some, some improvement in demand coming in from overseas. Looking at Australia, I think uh, compared to a lot of nations around the world, we've done a pretty good job of keeping a lid on the virus. Still a very, uh, very nice place to live, very livable um, uh, area. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see a bit of a lift in overseas demand for Australian property. Keeping in mind that if you are an overseas buyer, you have fairly strict restrictions on what you can and can't buy, and it typically has to be either new or, or uh, a new stock or um, land that you can build on. Yeah, great stuff. Tim Lawless from CoreLogic, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Well, the coronavirus has uh, challenged a lot of industries, but one in particular has to be the building industry. I'm talking to Danita Warren, the CEO of the Masters Builders Association. Thanks for joining us, Danita. 
Pleasure, Peter. So now let's go through it. Our industry is confronted uh, by uh, forecasted declines of 27%, you say, in home building activity, around 17% in commercial construction over the next 12 months. You know, I, I guess the, the, the question a lot of us would be asking is, has the, the home builder scheme that the Prime Minister put out, has that actually uh, been a benefit to you guys? It has, and that 27% figure actually takes into account uh, the significant boost in sales that we've seen through Home Builder. So imagine what that figure would have been had we not had Home Builder. Um, we've had record sales uh, as a consequence of that announcement in June. Uh, that's starting to show through the figures. Uh, and we believe it's been a huge boost to activate private investment that would not have otherwise occurred. Okay. Now, what's the Victorian effect? Because obviously, uh, with the lockdowns, there has to be a lot less building going on. What's actually going on in Victoria right now? Unfortunately, not much. Mm. Uh, not, not much happening in terms of building. There are significant restrictions for building and construction for both residential and commercial. Um, the nature of building, meaning you'll move from one site to another, uh, has been pretty much stopped. Uh, and as such, it's a significant downturn in the sector. But not only that, people are not going and looking at display homes, for example. Mm. And as such, not only is the uh, current work stopped, but equally we're not seeing those forward sales that were looking so good pre the lockdown in terms of the home builder activities. So yep. there's a double whammy there, unfortunately, both for now yep. and into the future. Okay, so if we, if we presume Victoria is out of lockdown level four, by say a month's time, hopefully less, but a month's time, what kind of projections would you start to factor in in terms of a rebound in building in Victoria and, and interest in buying in Victoria? We still think there's a significant demand there and we hope and anticipate that these um, positive um, nature of home builder will continue once the lockdown um, opens up. The concern we have, however, is that home builder is limited to the end of the year and will therefore have some significant time restrictions. Hence our call to the federal government to expand home builder for another 12 months. Mm. Have, have you been talking to anyone in Canberra and they're, they're showing some positive reactions to your requests? Absolutely. Um, the thing that has been fantastic about Home Builder is that a spend by the government has created a tenfold spend in terms of private investment. That activation of private investment is so incredibly important rather than just simply relying on government to fund activity. Mm. Uh, and so the government is very keen to see um, what additional measures they can have in the building and construction sector that has a multiplier effect of nearly threefold mm. in terms of economic activity. So this is not just about jobs for tradies, but this is jobs throughout the entire supply chain, as well as those that rely on that ec economic activity of the building and construction industry surviving. Yeah, when you use the words private investment, do you basically mean all of the, the businesses as well as the, the purchases of properties just actually being motivated by the fact there's an incentive there? 
Absolutely. We know that um, while there are pockets in the economy that are feeling um, the significant constraints of the economy, equally there are people with private wealth and institutional private wealth and business private wealth that if they are given some incentives, whether it's through the tax system or grants by government, they may well activate that investment. So we see there are huge opportunities through the upcoming budget to activate that investment, whether it's in residential property or in commercial property, to see if we can stimulate the economy and create more jobs. Yeah, and I guess what we're talking about, if you think of the, the well-known names who have been associated with large developments, obviously if the government wasn't doing anything, they would be sitting on their hands because they wouldn't be risking their money. But with the incentives from Home Builder and other incentives out there, I guess they are thinking about expanding the offering of products over the next year or so. Absolutely. And despite the fact that we're seeing um, population nearly at a standstill in terms of um, no one coming into the country, we know in the long term that there still will be population increases. We know we need um, more housing. Uh, and as such, there is still going to be that demand there in the future that needs to be met. Uh, and so people are willing to take those risks, but they don't want to take such huge risks that they won't spend. And so it's finding that sweet spot to in encourage that investment. Okay, you, you run the risk of being in trouble here with uh, former Prime Ministers Paul Keating and Kevin Rudd asking for $50,000 to be uh, uh, released from superannuation for home uh, buying purposes. Have you had any reaction from either Labor or the, or the industry super funds because of your request? It certainly created an interesting debate in the superannuation community. Mm. Uh, we obviously believe that at the moment um, there are hardship provisions in superannuation for people to access their, uh, their, their money. Uh, that includes things like paying mortgages if you're in a financial hardship. So we think there needs to be a debate as to whether or not that can be extended. Uh, to see whether or not if people want to get into the housing market are having difficulty, may, for example, need to pay mortgage insurance, can they access some of their superannuation to assist them getting into the housing market rather than being um, paying rent? Uh, so we think the debate needs to be there. The question about quantum and circumstances needs to be considered. But we think there are opportunities there to get people into the housing market and in turn stimulate the housing industry as well. Mm. Has the superannuation industry ever shown any interest in actually building properties and selling them? That's the uh, great thing about Seabus. Um, um, it has Seabus Property, which is a property developer. Uh, it's provided huge returns for members mm. in Seabus and is uh, doing extraordinarily well. So there is a great example there with Seabus um, Property in getting into the property market, but in a way in which it's providing those important returns uh, for its members. Um, superannuation is there for one reason and one reason only, and that is the retirement outcomes for its members. And certainly property development, while risky, if it's done well, you can get good returns. Tell us about the Community Builder Grants. Community Builder Grants is really an idea that stemmed from the success of Home Builder. 
uh, community builder uh, is all about seeing if we can replicate what's happened in home building for the commercial building sector, particularly those small to medium sized businesses that are seeing cancellation of projects at a rate of knots. And how can we encourage spending, particularly by not for profits, in developing buildings? So we've suggested that the government um, contributes 25% of spend and that we can see a range of opportunities that could well include um, small developments in social and affordable housing. It might mean a desperately needed um, change room for sporting groups. Uh, and it might also mean um, a new hall um, for a community. In, it's an open-ended opportunity to facilitate building at that commercial level uh, to ensure that we are supporting um, our commercial builders around the country. Okay, so you know, clearly residential is something that Australians are always into and you seem to be making a big point that we need a, a real help to commercial uh, building. Why is that important? Well, a large number of um, the building industry is all about commercial building. And at the moment, um, institutional investors as well as businesses simply do not have the confidence to go ahead with their uh, construction, whether it's large office developments, whether it's large high rise residential or even small commercial building. And we're seeing, for example, the university sector that has been slammed, there's been a large number of projects that have been canceled because of the uncertainty. But in the long term, a lot of these organisations will need new structural um, activity um, or maintenance of existing buildings. And so the question is how, again, can we facilitate um, the investment that we know is sitting there to enable people to take those decisions in the long-term benefits of their organisation? Okay, now what about the banks? We've seen this week that the Reserve Bank has um, given another $200 billion uh, for banks to lend to SMEs. They've already given them 90, but only 56 billion has been lent. Are you getting any feedback that banks are still playing hardball with builders who do want to actually get out there and get some work done? It is for the builders, but it's more so, unfortunately, for their clients. Hmm. Uh, it is, we're finding increasingly difficult for clients to access um, funding. Obviously, we understand the reasons for that. Um, can I say we're working closely with the Australian Banking Association uh, to enable um, a greater understanding of the constraints upon which banks are there. But it's very pleasing to see that the RBA and any of those monetary policies are being considered so it doesn't become too tight. There's a balancing act here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we need to ensure that the banks are being reasonable, that they've got that opportunity to be flexible, uh, but at the same time, obviously not create too high a risk that will have a detrimental impact to the economy in the longer term. Yeah, I, I do think they need to uh, rethink their risk equations, given the fact that they're borrowing at such low interest rates. In the past, they've been high interest rates, you can understand why they're a little bit nervous, but. I think there is a, a rescue aspect to this that, that means that their risk management equations need to change. 
Look, I, th I think that's right, Peter, but, and obviously, um, as you say, there are very low interest rates at the moment, um, and individuals do have that capacity to pay in most circumstances, and it's trying to find that balance between ensuring that uh, people are not borrowing um, too much money that will simply get them into financial difficulty. But at the same time, if we're going to get out of this economic crisis, we need some risks to be taken, not only by governments, but by banks and individuals, because that's the way in which economic activity is going to return to this country. You can't argue with that. Danita, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Well, I said in my introduction that Simon Presley from Propertyology is going to give us the uh, explanation of what a fried egg business model is or fried egg model for property, let's just find out because he thinks we're heading to a, a scrambled egg model at the moment. Thanks for coming on the program, mate. Uh, always good to have a chat, Peter. Yes, well, I guess if the last decade in Australia, if smashed avocado was re was responsible for uh, housing in this country being unaffordable, I'd like to think that the next decade will all be about scrambling the fried egg. Um, obviously, not going to find that term, Peter, in an Oxford dictionary. It's a propertyology uh, analogy. Mm. Um, what we're referring to is some um, sort of global town planning models. Um, 50 odd years ago, about when the time when you, were, you and I were born, mm. um, we had the traditional quarter acre block uh, out in suburbia, but we still had CBDs where um, the banks and government departments, etc., were in office blocks. And as um, populations have grown, the CBDs have got much bigger, and that's what we're referring to is the yolk of the egg. Um, we're getting higher uh, office blocks, um, more law firms, more accounting form firms, more banks in there. And as that's happened over the years, we've also complemented with high-rise apartments. Um, and they've performed um, pretty poorly over the last 20 years. Um, and we think um, uh, COVID is going to sort of change the way town planning has unfolded. Mm. So are you saying that the, the yolk, the yellow bit, is like an expanding CBD? Yeah, the, the city centre where all the action is, um, mm. where there's the, the majority, whether it's Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane or anywhere, a majority of the people go to work. They, yep. They're commuting into, into the yolk each day. Yep. And as populations have grown, um, I guess town planners have given some of that segment of the workforce the opportunity of either continuing to commute into town or indeed to actually live in town. Hence yeah. the high-rise apartments have sort of evolved in Australia roughly over the last 20 to 30 yeah. years. I've often called it the, the Manhattanization of Sydney and Melbourne in a sense that uh, who would have thought you know, 20, 30 years ago that young people would want to live in apartments right in the centre of Sydney? You know, they all wanted to be... You know, quarter acre blocks, as close to the beach as possible or close to the wilderness as possible, but not, not until recently. Now, that's the fried egg model. Tell us what the scrambled egg model is. Well, we think, um, the, we think that the fried egg model, there will always be a city centre. We're not yeah. saying that they're going to crash and when, you know, going to knock down buildings or anything like that. But we do think that there's going to be a number of strokes of the fork going through the yolk of the egg and breaking that yolk up. Mm. Um, if we think about what COVID is, it breeds most in congestion. Wherever we've got the most densely populated communities, there will always be the greatest risk of contagion. Uh, that's one stroke of the egg. Already we have some of our largest 
uh, office-based workforces, the big banks, government departments, insurance companies, accounting firms, etc., that to just comply with social distancing, they are already having some of their workforce work from home. The longer the coronavirus goes on, the more likely that some of those businesses, not all, some of those businesses will make that a permanent arrangement. We already have, and I'm, my own business has done this recently, a number of small businesses that pre-COVID worked in a traditional office environment and have since already made a permanent decision to never return to that we're working from home. Hence, another stroke of the fork through the yoke. Our international students predominantly live in apartments in that yoke. Who knows when those international students will, will return? Uh, until we've got a vaccine, they may never return. Our international tourists who provide, uh, or I guess they um, are responsible for our airline workers, our, our restaurant operators, our hotel workers. A lot of those are without work at the moment. Before too long, they may need to seek alternative employment. So they're not going to be commuting into the yoke and they may not be living in those high-rise apartments. The, the fork just keeps going through here. And then if you think of more and more, if office workers, if there's less of them working in the cities, the retailers that are supporting those, the hairdressers and the, and the cafes, uh, the clothing outlets, some of those will close or they'll relocate to suburbia. So we're just continually stroking it at the yoke here. Um, the demand for housing hasn't diminished, Peter. We've still got just as many people who need to live somewhere, but we're dispersing into different patterns now, and hence the scrambling of the fried egg. Do you think that what you're going to also see is some functional buildings in this uh, yoke, which is currently, currently maybe uh, an excessively big department store, could, could actually turn into high-end apartments? Well, it's certainly going to create some challenges and uh, some problems for people. And they're going to need to perhaps think of repurposing some of these buildings because, um, again, I don't think that we're going to see buildings knocked down, but certainly the demand for people to, as many people to be wanting to work in amongst this congestion and to live in amongst this congestion, logic would suggest that's going to, to diminish. Now, if you own one of these big buildings, you've got to get a return on your investment. What are they going to do? I don't know. Mm. Let's just go and look at the five key demographics behind a transference of housing demand, something that you, yeah. you talk about. Tell us yeah. about those five. Yeah, so as I said, um, the germ doesn't diminish demand for housing. It will just spread it differently. Uh, not everyone's going to relocate. But according to our last census, we had 4.7% of Australia's workforce that were working from home. Now, that's back in 2016. I would not be surprised at all if by 2021, when we do our next census, that will be well into the double digits. Now, that has the potential to create an additional 500 to 600,000 people working from home. If they choose to work from home, and they were previously working in the, uh, in the city, home could then be anywhere. They could be uh, working from their current home, which might be a, a middle ring house, for example, or they could say, no, we actually want to live somewhere else in Australia completely by using the internet of things that most of us have had to embrace uh, since this COVID sort of situation. So um, the demographics, I guess, one is the what we call the suburban shift. So someone moving from a congested uh, inner city apartment to live in suburbia in that same city. Demographic number two is the working from home complete 
relocation, moving town. Uh, demic number three is the early retirees. Some of them may have had their um, jobs already lost through this COVID period and it's, it's too late, too hard to recover and might have brought forward their retirement. To achieve that, if they're asset rich and cash poor, as a lot of baby boomers are, they may need to sell that expensive home in, say, Sydney and Melbourne and relocate to a different part of Australia. Demographic number four is the job takers. Large parts of regional Australia are still creating jobs. Their economic profiles are very different to our capital cities, Peter. Mm. And, they, and those job creations will, will, will attract some people to relocate. And demographic number five is where there's a personal connection. Someone who's made a decision um, for a variety of lifestyle reasons and income choices to move, where they choose from might be linked to where they've lived before, where they've been on a holiday or where they have family members. Simon, you know with economics and demographics, there are what we in the old academic um, game, which I came from, there are intertemporal issues. And, and one intertemporal issue is everything you said then is totally right, I think, in the short term, but in the long term, some of them might not work out. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, I was in Blackheath on the, on the weekend and the weekend before where it, where it, when it snowed. Yeah. It was packed. And all the people, all those yuppies who used to go overseas and spend $65 billion travelling overseas, they can't travel overseas anymore. Many of them can't get out of New South Wales. They, they can't because you guys in Queensland won't let us in. So, so they're, they're going out to all the regions and the regions are killing them, as you, as you pointed out. But once we start to travel again, those regions will still do okay, because I think some people will never travel overseas again, but they won't do as well maybe in two or three years' time as they're doing uh, right now. So will there be a bit of toing and froing before the new model, the new scrambled egg model actually shows itself? Uh, maybe, but I mean, some people, Human beings are reluctant to change, aren't we, Peter? Um, mm. You know, it takes a lot for, for people to change, and most people will not change. But in a country with 25.5 million people and 10.5 million dwellings, it only takes a small percentage of, of our resident population to make those changes. And there's lots of reasons um, why a small percentage would do that. In mm. fact, many already have. Um, yeah. Our buyers agents are seeing that on the ground in locations all over Australia already. So it only takes a small percentage to constitute a structural shift. We, this is not, and this is not a new thing, the shift to the regions. Before COVID started, the official ABS data, the eight capital cities, their populations declined by 53,000 people over the last three years from what we call internal migration. Uh, that is an existing Australian resident, not an overseas uh, uh, immigrant, who has made a conscious decision to move town away from a capital city. 53,000 people. Mm. Our best performed property markets in all of Australia over the last five years, with the exception of Hobart being the only capital city, were regional locations. In no particular order, there are places like Maitland, Ballina, Coffs Harbour, Orange, Launceston, uh, Mount Barker, uh, Burnie, they've been the best performed property markets over the, over the last five years and partly because they're attracting so much internal migration from our capital city. So we think the coronavirus, the impact from society, is going to further accelerate 
that migration or the exodus away from capital cities. Yeah, so therefore, are you seeing this as a structural um, 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 break on the house price rises we've seen in capital cities in recent years? Uh, I definitely see that. Now, how long that lasts for will determine will be determined by if and when there's ever a vaccine developed. Hmm. Uh, I'm an optimist. I'd like to think there will be one developed. Um, but even if it was developed as early as next year, I think we all know that the contagion won't stop immediately. Hmm. It's going to be with us for quite some time. Uh, and the more we have lockdowns and the more our lifestyles are curtailed and our incomes are curtailed, more people are going to be wanting to take their destiny in their own hands and reducing, reducing the risk by moving to a less densely populated location. Mm. I suspect if you're right, mate, a lot of beach locations, their prices will go up. Well, it could be the sea change. Mm. Um, I think our winery regions, which are in uh, a number of states, are going to be exceptionally popular. If you think about lifestyle, many of us uh, you know, have, have had holidays and long weekends in our winery regions, so mm. we know they've got a good lifestyle. Uh, they're not densely populated. And there are plenty of tree changes as well. Places like Orange and Armadale, uh, Bendigo and Ballarat will always be very, very popular. Simon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. Take care, my friend. Cheers.